0: this is the adoptive mom podcast adoption may look different for each family but we need solidarity from other crazy people who took this leap and that is what we do here we encourage we build up we share the wins and losses we lean on each other and we get through this together thanks for joining us Welcome, welcome all my friends to the Adoptive Mom Podcast. I'm Alex Fitton and I'm dishing up piping hot adoption stories from influencers we know and love all season long. These are stories of beauty from ashes, of redemption from the crappy hard times, of the still hard sometimes times, and all the lessons learned along the way. You're here for season eight, episode 114, and I'm so thrilled you're here because today is an amazing episode. We're going to hear from Ellie Coburn, a young single adoptive mama from California, and she just has the coolest story. You guys, I am so thrilled to share it. Ellie and I have a mutual friend who connected us and we stayed on that phone call long past our recording time, just chatting. And it was so great connecting with this mama. Before we get to our chat with Ellie though, I want to take a minute to impress upon you what every single podcaster ever tries to shout at you all the time, which is the importance of rating and reviews. You guys, I don't even fully understand how and why, but it is such a cornerstone in the podcast world to have stellar reviews by the bucketfuls. Uh, this is what tells the powers that be to recommend your show to more mamas who need to hear it. And I am asking firmly, but nicely that you head over to iTunes, even if that's not how you usually listen and leave a review today. One of my favorite recent reviews was from Mackenzie Bray, who said, Love, love, love this podcast. This podcast feeds your heart, soul, and mind. I cry, laugh, and smile throughout each episode. This podcast has been such a blessing in my life. The only thing I regret is not finding it sooner. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much, Mackenzie. I would just love it if you went and left an equally nice review on iTunes. All right, let's go chat with Ellie Coburn. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Adopted Mom Podcast. I am so excited to be talking to my new friend, Ellie, who we have a mutual friend, but I've also been following her on social media for a long time. And so I'm really excited to be able to like chat with you, you know, face to face via Zoom anyway. So, yeah, welcome to the show, Ellie. How's it going? Hi,
1: Alan. It is going so well. Uh, you and I were just talking for a second before we hopped on this call about how I am not used to being on the um, interviewee end of podcast because I have my own podcast. And so it's funny. It's
0: just weird in my own intro. I'm just like, yes. Hello. <laughs> it's almost a little bit like discombobulating. You're like, Oh, right. Now I like I respond now. Right. Okay. Gotcha. Right, right, exactly.
1: It's a taste of my own medicine. It's how I feel. I'm also a photographer. It's how I feel when I'm on the other side of, of the camera. Right. I'm like, yeah, oh, this is actually hard. <laughs> I have empathy for my
0: Yes. My husband's also photographer and he always says that he's so awkward in front of the camera, but then he gives me grief if I'm awkward in front of the camera. And I'm like, I don't want to hear it, buddy, because this is a taste of your own medicine.
1: Right. It's so funny. I just had a client. So we did photos on mother's day in Joshua tree. And then I had a client the weekend after. And during the shoot, uh, she said something to the effect of like, this is so hard. And I said, I know. And then I realized like a minute later that she probably thought I meant like her family was hard. And I was like, just to clarify, I just am ha- having PTSD from last Sunday when I was on the other end. And I, what I mean by that is it's so hard to be in front of the camera. And so we were laughing about that. But yeah, it's the the tables have turned. Yeah, I'm so excited. Yeah, I'm so excited to dive in. I love this concept of being able to just talk about um, something that just doesn't have a ton of spotlight. I mean, it does in our world, right? You know, where we are intersectional, the conversation, the adoption narrative is, is very much a part of our day to day life. But when we think about, you know, the general population, the adoption narrative is not always centerfold. And so it's nice to be giving um, a microphone literally to the conversation.
0: Yes. And it's been so fun. I mean, to be able to have these conversations, um, and even this season to be able to have conversations just centered around stories. Cause I, you know, that's the biggest feedback that I get from my listeners is that they really just enjoy hearing adoption stories, which is so fun. So, and that's what we're going to do today. But before we do that, take a second and introduce us to who you are and what you do and your family. Um, it sounds like you wear a million hats. So let's hear about all of them.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Ellie Copern. I am born and raised San Diegan, uh, currently living in San Diego uh, with my two kiddos. I have a three and a half year old adopted son, Oliver, and a two and a half year old adopted daughter, Hazel. Um, and I only say that for the sake of you know this conversation because they are very much just my daughter and my son. Um, and then I have been fostering since October of 2017, and um, yeah so I'm sure we're going to get into all of that but we've had 14 kiddos come and go through through our doors since 2017 so things have been crazy but when I'm not fostering and when I'm not being a mom I am a photographer by trade as I mentioned um, I've been a photographer for seven years so it's been a crazy ride. I, I, I predominantly specialize in um, families and weddings and then also um, children's portraiture and so that has been really really great. And it's also been, it's lent a huge hand in me being able to have a flexible schedule to be able to foster and to be able to, you know, step into this work at the age that I did. I started when I was 21 and then also um, alone because I'm doing this as a single mom. And so I definitely owe that credit to being, you know, my own business owner, make my own hours and photography has just been a huge passion, but also just a really great fit for my family. And then I'm currently going to school. Um, I'm studying anthropology and neuroscience at the moment. And a lot of that has come into, um, fruition because of the work that I'm doing, you know, um, in the foster community, uh, because you really can't unsee a lot of, of what you see. And I have, it's funny because I say like a lot has happened, not just, you know, as in my work as a foster parent, but also in my life And now I study social science um, (laughs) because that's really the only way you can make heads or tails of it sometimes. And so that's something that is a huge, huge passion of mine, academics, academia in general, um, huge, you know, something that I really, really um, value that I didn't really, really value for my whole life. And so in my late, you know, mid twenties, I was like, and I just turned mid 20, I say mid 20, I'm 25, but I was like oh, I think I want to go back to school. I don't think an artist forever. And so that's where I am right now. Um, and then other than that, just enjoying, you know, keep staying busy, busy with two kiddos, sometimes a third, if I have a third foster, um, as we often do and just doing life.
0: Wow. Um, okay. I have Follow-ups because your story just—I mean, just—we haven't even gotten into your story, but you just have like so much going on. I think it's so funny that you talked about um, your academia and how that's come out of your foster and adoption journey and experience. Um, it's really funny because when I went to college, I was a comm major, a communication major, which of course was like the blow-off major, right? Like everyone thought of it like that. But going into college, I was like, well, that's literally like I just love people, and so that's what I want to do. And now I do this, so I'm like to everyone saying that it was a blow off major. It's really fun to be able to be like, no, I actually use it. So take that. Um, which is just kind of a funny tag along to your story, but, um, also, so you're doing photography. Do you take, uh, pictures of your kids? Because I tease my husband all the time. My husband's also photographer. We have like no pictures of our kids because he's like, I do that during the day. Why do I want to come home and do it at night?
1: Right. So I do take pictures of my kids. Um, but not nearly as much as I would have thought that I would, you know, I would say probably I try to get them in front of the camera once every two weeks in front of the big camera once (laughs) every two weeks. And then I have them in front of the iPhone camera, you know, almost every day, but that's every mom. But as far as like setting up for actual real, you know, quality professional pictures, I'm lucky to do it once every two weeks when I used to think in my mind, my pre-mom mind, I was going to do it like every day or do, you know, time lapses or whatever else. And yeah, that has not come to fruition, but I do, I do try to be intentional. I would say more than most, but not more than I thought I would.
0: Well, that's better than my husband. So Brian, I hope you're listening. You should get on the ball with that. Um, Okay. Well, I'm so excited to dig into your whole journey. Um, you Just your little like tee up is fascinating. So yeah, just take us back to the beginning. Uh, what on earth made you want to decide to do this at the ripe old age of 21?
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, <laughs> that is a very loaded question. It's kind of hard, especially in a podcast setting, like to decide where is point A for the sake of this podcast, right? Right. Um, but for the sake of the podcast, I'll just say that, um, I have loved kids for a very long time since I was very young. Um, I've known that I wanted to be a mom. It was a true north of mine growing up and, you know, going through a lot as a teenager. I lost my dad. I, I went through a lot of issues, major was, um and motherhood in general was just a true north for me. It was something that I knew that I always wanted to do. It was kind of um, you know, on my darkest days, it was the thing that I was prevailing towards, right? And, and it was something that felt like this far off, you know, thing in this far off life. Um, I was working with kids a lot in in various capacities as a nanny, uh, you know, as a Sunday school teacher. Um, And in summer camp counselor, I mean, just all the hats with kids. Um, And I feel like even more than that, you know, just always around children. And I was introduced to um, the idea of, of foster care. Um, after doing a lot of of mission work abroad. And I had started to have some questions about the ethics of of mission work abroad, which is a whole different podcast for a whole different day. But basically um, those questions that I had about the work that I was doing there led me to, to stop, to to stop going um, on these trips and to stop entertaining um, the idea that, you know, I was needed over there. And, And so what that left me with was a lot of time capital to be be able to devote to other projects and, and other things. And I was being fulfilled in many areas. But I think that what was missing for me was that component of being able to work with vulnerable children. And um, that was a role that I felt like I really excelled in. And, and though, again, a whole other co- you know, conversation for a whole other podcast episode, um, I you know though I was leaving that work for the ethical reasons, Um, When I had heard that there was a huge, huge need right here stateside, right here in my own county, San Diego County is one of the largest counties in the nation for the amount of foster children that we have, and we have a massive foster parent deficit, Um, I actually reached out to the... um, the, we have a children's home here that effectively is the melting pot for all the children that they unfortunately cannot place in foster homes. And so, at 21, I I did not think that I could adopt. Um, this actually all started when I was 20 because I, I had to I waited I waited 13 months to get approved. So when I was 20, I reached out to them because I wanted to inqu- inquire about if there were, were ways that I could volunteer at the center um, or you know just support in any capacity have a fundraiser whatever and um and that is when someone on the phone, I can't remember, I'm trying to remember, but someone on the phone basically told me, you know, you could be a foster parent. And that really threw me for a loop. Um, and, and just to kind of preface, because people I think are a little bit confused about this, but effectively um, in most counties, the, the cap on being a foster parent is 18. Not that everybody who's 18 should run and become foster parents, but the reason for that is because there's a lot of siblings that want to adopt and or, you know, kinship, which is, Um, kinship placement is just familial placement with their, with your younger siblings. And so they don't put a cap on it. Um, But what they do, obviously, if you are trying to become a foster parent is they make you jump through a lot of hoops that normal 18 year olds cannot jump through, such as financial hoops and stability hoops and, you know, psychological evaluations and all of that. And so um, typically that's kind of how they, they would weed it out. And as I mentioned earlier, um, the only reason why I was able to even jump through these hoops was because I had already had an established career for a little over two years at that point. And so, um, because of that, I, I, you know, I had a financial means, I had the stability, I had the flexibility in my schedule, and then I had the support network, which I know we're going to talk a little bit about later as well. And so I, my wheels were turning and I thought like, wow, this is, really crazy that I could just step into this role. But also um, I was kind of in my mind thinking, well, what's better for them to be in a sterile environment where they are literally sleeping on cots in a gymnasium at times because the overflow is so impacted or um, I'm living in this home that has an extra bedroom that is not being used that I almost never step foot in. Um, And just offering that space up that square footage up. And then also that time that I mentioned that I had a lot of at the time. And so I said yes, and I started the process and I met a lot of angels along the way. Um, My, um, the home evaluation worker that came in was very supportive and connected me with a different social worker who was able to connect me with some other um, additional trainings that allowed me to be specially trained to work with highly vulnerable children. And so I was able to to get the highest level of certification that you can get here in San Diego County. And I learned so, so much. And then that worker who was responsible for for helping me to get the highest level of certification was also the same worker who placed me with my first of 14 placements, um, who ended up being Oliver my adopted three and a half year old and so um, and that was wild because it's just the beginning even now it feels like just the beginning of this grand adventure I know that I am not done fostering and I doubt that I'm done adopting at least in the long, long term I think for right now I am but at least you know in the long term I know I'm not done yet and so it's crazy that this whole story started with my, my first baby Oliver and um, And so, yeah, Oliver came home and he came home at six weeks old. He was just so, so tiny and so precious. And I was um, very much a complete newbie at everything, you know, not just at motherhood, but also at fostering. And I had so many preconceived notions about what it meant to foster and what it meant to be, you know, a good foster mom and, and all of that. And so it was all just kind of like baptism by fire, if you will, um, really beautiful moments, some really, really traumatizing moments, to be honest. And then it all ended up um, working out in, in a really divine way that I adopted him. Um, and you know, I say divine with an open palm because whenever you're talking about adoption, you're also talking about redemption, right? And you're talking about redemption against the backdrop of, of trauma and tragedy. And so I don't want to say that, um, I don't, I don't think for any adoption, as I'm sure you've talked about before that, um, that there can be a full redemption story arc, because there's it's tragedy. But when I look at at Oliver's story, his name is Oliver Phoenix, which means the olive tree born from the ashes. And um olive trees represent, you know, hope and redemption and miracles. And so he quite literally is this, you know, redemption story um born from the ashes. And I celebrate that a lot. But before Oliver was adopted um at two, and some change, I think. So he was, yeah, he's an August baby and his adoption was in October of his second year. Um, we had four other placements and they came and they came and went except Hazel, our fourth placement, she ended up staying and huge surprise because the fact that I was going from, oh yeah, I can totally open my, you know, bedroom door for a season and just hold space for these, you know, kiddos while they get better, their parents get better, get on their feet, you know, um, to, oh yeah, I can adopt this child was already crazy. Like I, it was just like, it was so wild. my I saw my whole life flash before my eyes because this temporary thing was now becoming a permanent thing. And thus, my whole trajectory was changing. And then that was like, okay, well, whatever, you know, if I'm on Bumble or Tinder, like they'll, they'll be okay with me having a baby, but two babies, you know, that was, I did not see that one coming at all. And I remember, um, Hazel's story was really unique to the other kiddos that I had, had already come into contact with. whose you know, parents, even Oliver's family was really involved with the process in, um, even helping me to become his adoptive parent, which has been great and really unique. But with Hazel's family, they were not involved in anything at all. And it was very evident very early on that she was going to need to be adopted. And so I remember her, this little tiny micro preemie um, and me at 22 at the time, just being like, oh my goodness, in the dead of night, because I had this conviction of, I think I'm supposed to be her mom and I think this is supposed to be forever, which was so wild. And then, um, and then I, the conviction came to fruition and I very much was supposed to be her mom. But more than that, um, as, as time went on, it became very evident that Oliver was supposed to be her brother. Um, They have this really, really divine transcendent of space and time relationship that, uh, talk about redemption and talk about beauty from ashes. Like that's Oliver and Hazel. And they're inseparable and they sleep with their cribs yay apart so they can hold hands and they are very, very close. And I am just so glad that I could facilitate that relationship beyond, you know, being glad to be their mom, beyond, you know, all of the nuances that that contribute to, you know, adoption from foster care. I'm just so glad to be their mom. And so uh, I'm just so glad, rather, that that I was able to facilitate that for for them. So they have a great relationship. And then as time went on, um, we just kept taking on little fosters. And I had a hard and fast rule of like, I'm not adopting anymore right now, but I will foster um, as many as as are needed. And so in that time, we had 10 more placements come along um, and return home um, or to other adoptive homes in some cases, but it's been a journey. So that is kind of the the debrief. There's no short version of that
0: story, but that is the debrief version of that story. Um. Wow. Like that's, I mean, it's like, I don't even, sometimes I'm caught off guard and I don't even have the words to say because the story is just so powerful and that's what I'm feeling right now. So like composing myself, that's what I'm doing right now. You can't tell, but it's a lot and it's really cool. And it sounds like you have been able, I mean, you're, you're 25. So you are, I mean, you're the same age as I was whenever we adopted a teenager, but so I know firsthand how kind of quick you have to grow up. And even though I was married by 25 and I feel like, you know, I felt like I had so much together. Um, when you start this process and you jump in and you have so much extra responsibility thrown onto you, you kind of just have to figure it all out. what was maybe some of the, like one of the first moments where you were like, oh, this is like, this is the real deal now. Like, this is like not childhood. This is not being a kid. This is not no longer doing whatever I want. You know, I always say that you kind of have, you kind of get the selfishness squeezed out of you. Um, what were some of those moments like for you?
1: Oh yeah. Um, well too many to count truly, truly, (laughs) truly. but I definitely think that as I, you know, as I mentioned, I had no idea what I was doing when I said, oh yeah, I have an extra bedroom. Like I've worked with kids. I've worked with kids my whole life. Like, you know, I've always wanted to be a mom. This is like a, sh- I'm a shoe in for this. And, and there's a need there's a, and I love filling needs, you know, like that was kind of my mindset. And I had, um, I think at the time a lot a lot of really unhealthy saviorism around the idea that I was gonna step into this role and, and be this the savior for these children and these families. And I very quickly realized that that I, I was not and that this was gonna turn into if if it was a transaction at all that The children were bringing more to me than I was bringing to them um, tenfold. And so that was definitely a moment, a very sobering moment. But I think that for me, um, I, I had to grow up in a lot of different ways. And I sure I had my business and I had, you know, financial security and I had a place to call home. But what I didn't have, and I laugh now because I actually just turned twenty five a couple months ago, and um, in the neuroscience world, you know that um, around twenty five women um, are are known to have the myelination of their frontal lobe happen, which basically means that you start to um, think about consequences. you start to think about the future. you start to have a concept that is not like invincible or a, you know, you and that is a part of the you know, the the brain's process of developing. But at 21, you do not have that. And so you do feel invincible and you do feel like, come what may, you can handle all of it. And there was a lot of, there were a lot of moments along the way that were very sobering of, okay, oh man, I might not be as invincible as I thought, or oh man, I might need to really rethink, you know, my thoughts on this. And then two, another thing that was really, really just unexpected in the journey was realizing that it's one thing to say on paper, as every single person would, that their child comes first. But it is another thing to put that into action when there's actual feet to the fire, right? Because here's the thing every mom, every person would say, oh, I'd walk, you know, through fire on glass for my children. That is something that is just kind of an accepted fact about motherhood. But the reality is, and honestly, God willing, right? Nobody should have to walk through fire on glass for their kids. Motherhood ideally should be a beautiful thing and should not include a lot of fire walking or glass walking. But In the face of that, mothers typically will rise to the occasion and do exactly that. No hesitation. I think that when I started to um, come up against some adversity as Oliver's case progressed towards adoption, um, and I actually had to step into the fire, it was this moment of of multiple moments really over the course of, of a very short amount of time of realizing this is what motherhood is you know, this is, this is the fire, this is the glass and you're going to, you're going to do what you need to do. And that's going to look like sacrificing relationships and friendships. And it's going to look like sacrificing, um, you know, reputation. It's going to look like, um, choosing, making every decision really around your children and their best interest. And, um, and yeah, so that, that is definitely, it has been a process. Yeah. And, coming out the other side, it's definitely been a learning curve, but it's also been really beautiful in a lot of ways too.
0: Yeah. And I think that one thing that I've, I've noticed just in echoing your, that journey that you just described is that it just, it it's never over. And every time we get to a place where we're like, we've done it, we're at the top of the mountain. It's like, Nope. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's, this this kind of beautiful refinement that it seems like you're talking about right that you know especially using word pictures like phoenix and fire and process it it sounds holy but we notice we we know that that doesn't happen like you're not it doesn't it doesn't just click it doesn't snap into place it comes through this process of refinement that can take a lifetime um and i think that it's just I love the way you describe it because it does sound just kind of beautiful and I think that as adoptive parents we know that it's not beautiful it's it's beautiful you know deep down but like on the surface it can look like cleaning up puke and having to say no to plans and being completely misunderstood by every one of our peers and things that are so hard in the moment. Right. But that seems to be the theme of what you're describing is this beauty from ashes, this, um, you know, we know that adoption is never the plan, right? Like that's not the first plan, Mm -hmm. but it can be this redemption. It can be this, this backup plan. It can be still beautiful and it can still be complete, even if it has some band-aids along the way. Um, I don't know. Did you kind of walk in knowing that? Or when do you think that, that, oh, that yeah. piece started <laughs> that, or that, that picture started coming into place for you?
1: No, 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 no. I had no idea. And <laughs> I think that, <laughs> I think that that just speaks to the novice of, of the whole, you know, walking and I wouldn't trade it for the world. And I, and I wouldn't tour other young people who are in, you know, in, un, I always say unconventional and I use air quotes because I know this is a podcast. <laughs> I know that unconventional is um, it's a big word, right? Not just not just long, but it's a big word because it holds a lot of weight. And for for different people, it means different things because unconventional, you know, for one is normal for another. But in terms of unconventional family types, I would say that our family pretty universally it, it hits all the notches of unconventional, right? Um, and that has been a hugely sobering thing, um, as well. But I think that at the end of the day, learning that I giving myself permission to be unconventional and knowing that how people define family has always been too, too small, you know, for, for the reality of, um, of what, family is and what, what being human is and what the human experience has always been. Um, I think that the, and it's not, I don't want to say people have always defined family this way, because I feel like we've divested a little bit from, from what it was originally, um, you know, in, in times when there was tribal rearing and when there was a lot of, of familial community, um, that was a time when I feel like it was really prosperous. And it's a time now where we look at communities that don't have a lot to work with, but they rely on, um, you know, the village mentality and they're able to make do. And Mm -hmm. so that is something that shows, you know, how well that works. And so I think that for me, and I could talk so much about all of these things and I think I'm kind of pausing because I'm wondering which, you know which to delve more into, but I think at the end of the day, I realized along the way that along the way, being from the moment that Oliver came home until present day today, that um, unconventional does not have to be a bad thing, mm-hmm. and that unconventional can be as you you know as you said, there's a theme here in this conversation can be a really beautiful story arc, especially when the alternative is something as devastating as ending up a statistic in a system or ending up, you know, a child in a home that isn't a home at all. It's an institution or, you know, a holding place for children who don't have access to homes. And so I think that not to go on a a preachy tangent, but I think that for anybody that, um, but is considering fostering or adopting and they feel like it's an unconventional time. All I can say is don't let that word hold so much weight, you know, um, because it, it is something that you can see beauty in,
0: in all different family types. Um, I'm so sorry. I was writing that down because like, that is such an amazing quote, just not letting that hold so much weight because man, can we let stuff get in the way? Like really stupid stuff. Um, mm-hmm which is actually, so I, I have several different ways I want to go. So first of all, I want to highlight, um, the fact that you talked so early on in your journey, just about how a lot of people might even criticize you because you are single because you are young, that you're not giving these kids the life that they, you know, should have in a, in a dual income two parent home or whatever, what have you. But Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, I've seen so many women and men, you know, single dads who do this too, say, like, why on earth would, would what they're headed toward be better than what I could give them, even if it's not perfect, even if it's not complete, because no two parent household, no, no perfect family, no nuclear family is perfect, even if it might look perfect. Um and I've always thought that that was such a silly argument to say. Like, do you really think I should say no to children in need just because I don't look the way you think I should look? Um, I don't know. I just I want to highlight that. I w- and I want to ask you to talk about that more because I think it's you're, you're setting such an amazing example for people who might think that their singleness is holding them back. Right?
1: Um. Yeah. Wow. That's a that's a very okay. So. I want to start by saying something that doesn't necessarily just apply to fostering and adopting, but just unconventional life in general. And something that I've said that kind of fits the bill of my personal life. And that's that I tell people all the time, people that are from conventional nuclear families, people that, you know, look a certain way or or that, you know, would be deemed conventional. I say, you get to wear your red letter inside your pocket, I wear my red letter on my chest. We both have red letters. We, I, for all I know, you know, not that it's ever a contest, but for all I know, yours could be um, just as interesting, or um, you know, as mine. But I wear mine on my chest for all to see. And so, um, with fostering and, and adopting in unconventional seasons, that, that's something that that is very true. Not just for my own life and my own personal stuff, but also for this this spot in my life. And I tell people all the time, you know, people that challenge me, um, you know, is your life just picture perfect all the time? Is it just always, um, and I've noticed that a lot of the families that, um, are really quick to judge, individuals who are unconventional are also experiencing really horribly difficult things like infidelity or emotional infidelity, or, you know, um, and I don't just mean against the backup of relationships, but I also mean just in life, you know, there's a lot of nuance with making relationships work. It was so funny because I actually just bought a jacuzzi for for the kids and I, um, which was a big big deal. I booked a wedding and I was like, you know what? I'm just going to, I didn't even see this wedding money. I'm just going to spend it all on a jacuzzi. I've wanted this for a long time. We're going to just do it. And it it was funny because I called my best friend's mom yesterday to just catch up with some things she's actually fostering right now. And so I was catching up about um, how things are going with the kids And I said, well, you should come over in jacuzzi. Did you see we got a jacuzzi? And she goes, I've wanted a jacuzzi for so long, but um, her husband has always said like, no. And I said, you know what? That is the beauty of having complete veto power um, because I get to make the the financial decisions. So there's a lot of fun things about um, being the single parent. You know, you can just pick up for the day and go camping with no prior. There's, there's, you know, nobody knows that you're going to do that. You can decide that you're going to stay at a hotel one night Night and just do, you know, the pool. Um, There's been a lot of really great aspects of having complete veto power, um, including getting to have a jacuzzi, even though it was not the fiscally responsible thing to do. Um, But so there's that, there's that element for sure. But then the other element too is that um, right now, and this isn't to say or to devalue people that are in relationships, but right now, I am getting to do something really unique and that's completely focused my relationship on my relationships with my children. And um, I don't have any work to do in another relationship because that is not, you know, something that I'm prioritizing or pursuing um, in this season. And so it has, it's different and it's not for everybody, but it's not to say that there aren't a lot of other aspects that aren't great, you know? And so The reality is, as you had mentioned, that a lot of people get pushed back when they have, you know, especially coming when it comes to specifically talking about single fostering and single adopting. But the thing is that it can happen, especially with the community element, because I don't really feel honestly like I could do it alone. And I've actually realized that through some really sobering realities of when I started this journey, my immediate circle was completely different than the circle that I have now. Mm-hmm. And a lot of those relationships that I had had prior to this, they're not just ended, they're, they're severed because the, you know, and the blood is bad. Yeah. Uh, and that's been really, really hard. And there was a season a purgatory season where I was doing it alone and I was drowning and it wasn't until the community came along. I'm so, so lucky that they rushed in when they did because my purgatory was very short and I look back on just like the redemption and that, you know, continue to talk about redemption and making this whole thing a theme. But um my purgatory was very, very brief because the alarm sounded. I don't sound alarms often. I'm very much someone who does, you know, my thing. And I think that when I reached out to extended friends and family that were not a part of my inner circle, and it admitted that I needed help and that the ship was going down, so, so to speak, because of a lot of these interpersonal relationships not being what I needed them to be. When I realized just how hard this truly was, um, the Calvary came <laughs> and they came quickly and they came bearing lots of gifts. And because of that, um, I never really feel alone. And so I always say I don't know that I'm the best person. Person to speak to about single parenting because I get a little bit of the best of both worlds where I have a lot of people co-parenting with me, Mm -hmm. but then I also have um, complete veto power and I get to be the boss of everybody, you know, of our life. And so it's hard, but yeah, when it comes to um, co-parents, I actually have several, and um, and that's been a really beautiful part. And I think also that just goes to show for anyone listening that isn't you know an active foster parent or an active adoptive parent, it goes to show how you could be such a powerful influence in the life of somebody who is in that role, and, and how you could literally be the difference between them sinking and them swimming.
0: Yeah. Um, well, and that's a perfect segue back into something else that I wanted to to talk about just to highlight something that you said when you were talking about chosen family and you were talking about community and it takes a village and all of those things. That's one thing that, you know, I, I said at the beginning of this, I was a comm major and I love connection. That's my soapbox. Like we need each other. And I think that in a world where we're being pulled, especially not even talking about COVID, but especially with COVID, like where we're so separated from each other. And we think that social media or the internet is a, is an appropriate replacement for actual communication and actual connection with other human beings. Um, it, it was through adoption that I realized that like, no sis, that is not enough. That is not Going to replace it. That's not going to do it. And it just, it almost just elevated this sense of we need each other. And what happened to the days where we did this together? What happened to the days where we were discipling each other as women and as mothers and where we were in this community where we could lovingly call each other up and encourage each other and say you're doing a good job or, or trade babysitting or whatever, where that wasn't such a disconnected and fractured idea, you know, and I love that you highlighted that. I love that. It seems like you came to that realization through your journey as well. Right.
1: Yes, absolutely. I did. I, I did. And it wasn't until, um, actually other women started to, uh, insist on, on being there in that role that I ended up, just going ahead and setting aside my pride and setting aside a lot of, um, I think my trauma too, and deciding that I was going to let somebody help me and I was going to let somebody be my children. And it wasn't until um, I allowed other people to be in community with me the way that, um, you know, you talk about community. I always talk about community as well. I really value community. Um, and I talk a lot about the dichotomy between community and consumption and how in the era of social media, so much of our interrelational, um, Dynamic, it has shifted to consuming people passively. Mm. You know, we look at their life, we watch their life, we consume their content, but we don't engage. And I'm guilty of that just as much as the next person. Um, But I think what it does is it dehumanizes that individual and it creates a level, a degree of removal with that individual. And so that's where you get um, people being so quick to you know, unfollow or turn on other people or whatever, because there's no stake in consumption. There's no stake. It's just a passive thing. And it's so easy to judge people who you're consuming. And it's so easy to um, throw stones at people who you're consuming. But on the flip side, you have the community element and the community element um, is something that is so, so powerful because it transcends consumption and it says, Hey, I see you. I consume what you're going through and I want to I wanna be in that boat with you. And as a matter of fact, I'll leave my boat if your boat needs patching or if your boat is sinking oh, and you're welcome on my boat anytime. And I think that that is really the power of um, just transcending, like, like you had said, um, that, that way that we're kind of leaning into this new age of consumption and saying, no, I'm choosing
0: community. I love that choosing community, just like we talk about chosen family or chosen, you know, whatever. Um, I love that. I I don't know. That's so good. So, um, girl, there's, I feel like there's so many different paths we could go to. I could talk to you for hours and hours and that was a really cool connection. Um, but let's get into some of these closing questions. So what do you wish you could tell your younger self, uh, just go back to the very beginning and, um, what do you wish you had known?
1: I wish, (laughs) I wish, I wish, I wish I would have known that you can do anything for an hour. You can do anything for 10 minutes. And if you feel like you can't do anything for 10 minutes, then just do it for a minute, you know? And, and so I wish that I would have known that there are going to be moments in this journey that are going to require you to breathe through the minute Um, and then there are going to be moments if you're lucky where you you can breathe through the hour. And the weird thing about the human experience is that, um, nine times out of 10, (laughs) the heart keeps beating and, and you just kind of keep going through it. You keep moving through it. But I just wish I would have known when I, during all the times that I felt like there was no way I could go on during all the times I felt like there was just like, you know, I couldn't make heads or tails of what, you know, what I was experiencing, um, that it was going to be okay. And that it was only going to be okay because I only had to focus on that one minute.
0: I love that. Um, I think that that's just stage advice for like life in general, but I think especially when we're working with things like trauma and, uh, things that we You know, the we who were born in a neurotypical world have no access to, unless we've walked through it with our kids. Um, That's just like even more important to remember. Right. Um, Okay. So, what do you wish you had done differently?
1: What I wish I would have done differently, um, and I always answer this question because it's not the first time I've been asked this question. I always answer this question with the preface of. At the end of the day, nothing because all roads led me to my children, and the the roads that led me to my children were so precarious, so particular, so codependent on you know answering single phone calls at that single minute, that single second, that it literally, quite literally, if I had you know been at the sink. Instead of on my couch, when the phone call came in for you know either of my children, my whole life would look differently. And in that way, I'm very careful about trajectory questions. Um, it's same when people ask me like, "Oh, do you wish?" you know, you could have your dad back if you could. I'm like, Ooh, that's a loaded question because that's a trajectory question. And that would mean that everything thus far would be a different trajectory. Mm -hmm. So that being said, keeping in mind the fact that at the end of the day, the answer to that is nothing because the roads led me here. I do wish that I would have been more prepared with a community in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And I do wish I didn't have to find out the hard way that, um, community is an essential component of um, thriving in motherhood, especially in motherhood that is intersectional to really treacherous waters, which is obviously fostering and adopting and and nuance, right? It's not normal. It's not typical. It's not conventional. And so when you have those treacherous waters that you're entering into, you really cannot do that without community and I'm not talking about any community. I'm talking about community that has that has committed ahead of time to be in those treacherous waters with you. Mm-hmm. And so that is something that I wish I would have done differently. And something that I cannot recommend enough is to have a roundtable conversation with your inner circle before you adopt, before you go on a fostering journey, and really be able to... Um, have a clear and distinct understanding of who you're going to need to create boundaries with and of who you're going to get even closer to on the journey.
0: Yeah. And it seems like it's always like a fun surprise, you know?
1: (laughs) Yes, exactly.
0: I love that. I think that that is really important for us all to remember, especially because it it you almost can't know until it happens, you know? And unfortunately, that's a lesson that so many of us have to learn the hard way. Um, So yeah, I think look back and be like, yeah, that'd be great if we, <laughs> if we knew that, but it's so hard to, to, you know, hindsight 2020, I, It's such a, uh, I don't know, like a overused cliche, but it's, it's one of those adulthood things. You're like, oh, it's actually true.
1: Yeah. It's funny because it's actually been, it has actually been really cathartic for me to realize how many, um, other adoptive and foster parents had a similar experience Um, although my experience was really unique, the, the core of my experience was, you know, struggling to find community, struggling to find organic, authentic community, persevering through, you know, toxic relationships, unsupportive relationships. I felt so alone in that at the beginning when that all started happening. And then now it's like, oh, that's a cornerstone piece of pretty much everybody's story that has been a part of, of this. Yeah,
0: it's part of that fire we got to walk through dude. Um, okay. So kind of shifting, you know, not even shifting back, but staying with the community theme. How do you think your tribe has best supported you? Just your very favorite way that your people showed up?
1: Um, well, I mean, every single day, (laughs) um, I I'll kind of stick because there's just been so much in the past I'll stick to like present day and how people are, you know, in my life are actively supporting me. Even like today, like my best friend, she takes my son to soccer every single week. And that is their thing that they do together. And it's not about her doing that for this six week soccer thing. It's she is committing to doing that with him. He's three and a half until he is doing college sports. And so she is literally going to be in his life, taking him to sports um, weekly for his whole life. And that's, she says like, that's our thing. Cause I was like, Oh, you know, I know you've had a busy week. I'll take him this week. Um, because I, you know, I don't have anything going on tonight. She's like, no, that's our thing. We have to do it. And just the fact that she wants to be so supportive of him, um, is just so incredible. But she also shows up for our family in such tangible ways. I mean, if she will see a, a need in the house and she will fill it, she will literally be like, Oh, you know, I saw that the kids were making a mess on the new table that you bought. Um, I just brought these and it's just like placemats. And I was like, where'd you get those? She just bought them off Amazon. Like she didn't even like consult, you know, whatever. And I love that because I would never, ever buy myself placemats. And I would never think to go on Amazon to buy placemats. She did that with, you know, I mean, we have an over like an extreme example because our, our friends are so supportive, but she did that with like, she Marie Kwando'd the whole house. Like she, when we moved in, we just moved in, um, last month, but she just went through all of my drawers with me um, and just like organized it so that I had a baseline so that I could just put my laundry away and everything had a spot. And so those little tiny things, um, I have friends that come into the house and they pick up the broom and they just start sweeping while they're talking. And it's not even it's not even like, doesn't disrupt our conversation. And I used to be very resistant to it. And now it's just like, I I have so much peace about it. If they don't pick up a broom and start sweeping, they pick up a dish and start putting it in the dishwasher, you know, just very tangible ways to show up, but it doesn't feel judgmental. It doesn't feel, it just feels like this is, they see my home as an extension of their home and they care just as much about me having clean dishes as they care about having clean dishes. And so, and it's something where I think for me, this is very tailored to me because my friends know that those are the areas that I need support in, right? And I think that for anybody listening, if you have a family that you're wanting to support, it would be in your interest to get to know mom and dad or or mom or dad or whatever, you know, and, and know like what their needs are, what are their shortcomings, what are the areas where they really do struggle, and then fulfill those needs. Because maybe someone is really, really great at, you know, cleaning the house, but they really struggle with, you know, helping with homework or whatever else. And so if you could just come in and sit at the table with the kiddo and and go through homework with them once or twice a week, like you're taking the burden off of that parent tremendously. And so it's been really nice because my friends have gotten to know so well that they just pick up any slack that they know that is hard for me.
0: I love that so much. I know that I'm gonna sound like a broken record to regular listeners of the show because this is something I always say so much, which is that uh don't ask adoptive moms what they need. Just tell them what you're gonna do for them. Because oftentimes, you know, it's even though we can say that we think all the pride has been squeezed out of us, sometimes it's still there and we don't even or we don't even know. We don't even know what to say. We don't know what we need because our eyes are not there. Our eyes are on trauma. Our eyes are on just getting through the day or whatever. So we're not thinking about just the regular things or how to ask for help. And so my favorite ways that people have helped have always been when people are like, I'm going to come and do this. Like you don't have a choice and, um, or I'm bringing you food or I'm going to come and just hang out. And I'm always like, I didn't have to ask for that. And that means so much to me. Mm-hmm. So 100%. I love that. So on the flip side, how have you felt unsupported or misunderstood? And I always ask this question because I think people genuinely want to know what is helpful and what is not.
1: Yeah. I think that people asking me, you know, why now was not supportive because the answer is always going to be, why is it ever a good time to look away from suffering and why is it ever a good time to look away from from need that is literally life or death, literally, you know, a trajectory towards success or a trajectory towards failure, um, which is what these children are faced with every single day. That there aren't enough homes to to house them and to give them, you know, a family experience, um, which goes back to you know the family conversation about how every child deserves a family, no matter what it looks like, no matter what that family looks like, because love makes a family. And um, there's that quote, if there's love in a house, it's a palace for sure. And um, we talk a lot about like our home being a palace, um, regardless of any of the things that we've gone through, just because our benchmark for that is, is there love here? And if the answer is yes, then, then it is a palace. Um, but so yeah, I, I think that kind of not questioning why someone is choosing a quote-unquote unconventional lifestyle is something that I I wish people would have done differently. Um, And also, I think that if you're going... I'm answering this question a little bit differently, but it's still to the point of the question. But if you're going to to judge someone, if you're going to choose, if you're going to make a decision to judge somebody and you're, you're consciously deciding, you know what, I need to make this judgment, but you're not following that judgment up with an action of support or of solidarity or, um, or anything of that nature. Then I don't believe that you needed to make that judgment at all. And so I can't tell you how many times along the way people have felt the need to, for whatever reason, um, people like to point out when something is different and it's a very like primal childish thing. You know, like a child will see something that's different in the grocery store and point at it and be like, look, mommy, you know, but then they grow up and they realize that that's not appropriate or that there are appropriate ways to discuss in a non-offensive way about the differences. But I think that for a lot of people, for things that are more obscurely different, even in adulthood, they'll point and be like, look, look at that. That's weird. Or I feel like I need to impart something, you know, um, on this right now, even though there's literally no reason why you would need to impart something on. So, yeah. So that being said, I would say that I really don't think that judgment, passing judgment is ever appropriate, but if you are passing judgment and it's not, and it is from a place of love of true love, then you're going to be willing to get your hands dirty to fix whatever problem you see.
0: I love that. So many, pull quotes from this episode girl you're just wealth of knowledge <laughs> all right so lastly if you could just sum it all up what's your best piece of advice or encouragement for adoptive mamas in the trenches
1: yes um in the trenches that's a caveat right not just for adoptive moms but for those in the trenches um you know it goes back to the whole one minute one hour at a time thing But also, I think um, just kind of coming back to center of why we're doing this and of the fact that there is no perfect parent anywhere, biological, adoptive, foster, whatever. There's no such thing as a perfect parent. Um, And there really is no such thing as conventional. It's all a construct, right? Conventional is a construct. And so um, if you're in the trenches and it's really, really hard and it's really, really horrible, A, you're not alone. And as alone as you may feel, the biggest weapon that you can use to conquer the moment, seize the day, whatever you want to say, is to just remind yourself that you're not alone. And then also to remind yourself why you're doing it in the first place. Because anytime where things feel like, you know, the trench is so impossibly deep or whatever else, I think just taking respite in why you, why you chose what you chose and coming back to your values and your true North, um, is going to be able to give you just a little bit of ammunition to get through to that next, you know, whatever it might be that, that next hour, that next day, that next minute, whatever you're working towards, um, that next milestone, you know, that next appointment, whatever, um, you, you can take respite in remembering why you did it in the first place.
0: Yeah. Good stuff, man. Um, I think that's, I mean, like I said, that's important for everyone to remember, but I think especially when we're, when we're dealing with things that can throw us off at a moment's notice, you know, throw us off that center. Um, okay. So where can we find you? Where can we follow along with your podcast, with your kids, with everything?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So my Instagram is just my first and last name and make get nice and easy to find me. It's just at Ellie Coburn. And then I do have the nobody's damsel podcast, but we actually are just finishing up our first season. I think I have one more episode to debut. I've not been nearly as organized as the adoptive mom podcast. <laughs> um, we're going to take, take a little hiatus and we're going to get into season two, hopefully in the next six months. Um, but that's the nobody's Damsel podcast. And the nice thing is, is that that's right in my bio on Instagram. So if you find me on Instagram, you can find me on my podcast as well.
0: I love that. And of course I will have all of that linked in the show notes. Um, all right, you guys, Ellie and I are about to go have a fun conversation over on Patreon. If you are not a part of that community, what are you waiting for? It's super easy to sign up. Go to the adoptive mom podcast.com slash Patreon and hear Ellie answer five questions that she does not know about at all. I have not prepped her for these as per usual. Um, but until then, thank you so much, Ellie. Like this was so fun. I, again, I feel like I could talk to you for hours. I'm so excited to continue following you and so excited to be able to hand this interview to everyone listening right now. Yeah,
1: absolutely. thank you so much, Alex. This is super fun.
0: Thanks guys. Thank you so much for listening to the adoptive mom podcast. I hope you found encouragement here. I need you to know that you are enough and you're doing a great job. We are all in this together and I am over here cheering you on. Don't forget to check out show notes for this episode and other resources at the adoptive mom Thanks for joining us.